Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good day, Divine Avatar and a computer simulation. Oh my goodness, we have another mind blower for you. This is going to be broken up into three parts, and I am talking once again with physicist Tom Campbell. And in this one, we talk about virtual reality, the nature of consciousness, mandala effect, uh, simulation theory, and it's intense. Tom is super smart. Uh, He's the creator of My Big Toe, My Theory of Everything. And we really dive deep on this one and he kind of goes off and it's spectacular. We talk about why C is a context uh, constant, uh, the paradoxes of physics, the Big Bang theory, consciousness and relative and relativity theory, relativity and quantum mechanics, um, why it's not about doing and it's about being. Our intent modifies future probability um, or why that is, um, why intention can be weak or powerful, um, focusing on the will, why motivation can increase the will, uh, the Maharishi effect, what it means to be consciously involved. So my notes on this are massive. This is part one of three it's it's gonna be epic share it with your friends um and and what he brings from the theory like he can we don't really touch on the physics of this although he would happily do so i wanted to focus more on the practicality of okay if we are in a simulation like what does that mean and he has tons and tons of videos if you want to check out the physics on that um i'm not you know, I figured I'd like, okay, what, what does it mean though? If we're, we're in that, that's what I want to focus on. So anyway, um, this is an epic episode. If you want, if you like it, please share it with your friends, post it on Facebook, YouTube, whatever, take a screenshot in, um, um, Instagram. Let me know that you're listening. Um, support on Patreon is huge. If you want to support me on Patreon, that's amazing. I want to thank Patrick Newland. Thank you so much, my brother for, chipping a buck in the bucket it really helps goes a long way helps me travel helps me do the podcast and diminishes my massive debt <laughs> um yeah so it helps a lot but i'm going to keep doing it and i know that you know eventually through these incredible guests you know this is going to be just um you know supporting my life and it's awesome because i want to do this regardless if i have a million dollars or no no money because getting to talk to people like thomas campbell is a freaking treat um and i just get to share that with you um you could also leave a review in itunes so this one is from Lynn from the UK and it says podcast for the seeker. Thank you, Matt, for a fabulous series of podcasts and allowing us to share in your own explorations of life and consciousness and self, etc. with many fascinating and interesting guests and topics that we may not hear about. Thank you, too, for the manner you conduct the interviews, contributing to the interviewees' willingness to open up and share with you and us what has led them to their understanding and life path. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much for taking a moment to leave that review. It helps a ton, um, and I appreciate that. The best thing that you can do if you want to support the show is one kind act today over everything else. Um, That's showing that you are a spiritual master. Three kind acts go out of your way. Uh, Do this for a week. Take the kindness challenge, and the people who have done it have been writing 
me saying it's been a profound experience. So if you want to be a spiritual master, doesn't matter what you have read, believe how much you meditate, what religious thing you are, just do an act of kindness a day and then you're walking the path of the spiritual master. So let's get into this uh, episode. Um, Check out zenathlete.com. That book is great. I wrote it. Um, Sign up for the email list at mattbelair.com. You can get a free lucid dreaming if you go forward slash lucid dreaming. It'll give you an ebook and a guided meditation. Um, and as well, if you want some coaching, just go forward slash coaching and I'm doing one-on-one sessions as, as well as, um, you know, more in depth monthly coaching. So you can make an inquiry there if you want to get hooked up. So let's get into it. And before we do, let's come to a powerful state of peace and coherence. So wherever you are in the world, just taking a deep breath in through your nose, hold that breath and just let it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day, feeling totally peaceful and relaxed, taking another deep breath in through your nose. Holding that breath, feeling divine connection, and just letting that breath out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day. Taking in one more deep breath in through your nose, holding that breath and just feeling that connection to life force energy, to your true power, to your connection to divinity, to all things. And just let that breath out slowly with all the cares, all the worries, all the limiting beliefs and feeling just totally empowered, peaceful, present, strong, confident and ready to take on the world. So here we go. Let's get into this incredible part one of three with the man, Tom Campbell. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is a physicist who began researching altered states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at Monroe Laboratories in the early 1970s. These early drug-free consciousness pioneers helped design experiments, develop the technology for creating specific altered states, and were the main subjects of study all at the same time. He has been a serious explorer of the frontiers of reality, mind, consciousness, and psychic phenomena for the last 40 years and continuing. In 2003, he published the My Big Toe Trilogy, which represents the results and conclusions of his scientific exploration of the nature of existence. The MBT reality model explains metaphysics, spirituality, love, and human purpose at the most fundamental level, provides a complete theory of consciousness, and solves the outstanding fundamental physics problems of our time deriving both relativity theory and quantum mechanics from first principles, something traditional physics cannot yet do. Welcome back to the show, Tom Campbell. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you back. Um, we, I think I had you almost about a year ago, and um, your work has come up over and over again because it's super deep, it's super fascinating, Um, simulation theory and that whole thing is starting to blow up and you're one of the leaders in that. Um, Do you want to give the listeners who might not be familiar with your work a little bit about your background? I shared that bio. You've been doing this for a long time. Um, So maybe you can just give a brief intro and we'll dive right in. Okay. I have a hard time doing anything briefly, but I'll give it it a try. We'll see how brief I can make it. I started uh, understanding that reality was bigger than what I had been taught in physics class when I was in graduate school, and I started uh, with a TM uh, meditation process. And I I went to TM because it was only $25 for students, and it promised that you could get by on less sleep. 
And I was a graduate student at the time and less sleep is what I needed because there was just way too much to do and too little time to do it in. So uh, I learned TM and about two months in to TM, I found that I could debug computer code in my mind much more accurately and much more quickly than I could if I was actually looking at the code. Those were in the bad old days when, when computer was on, computer code was on punch cards and punch cards were in long cardboard boxes. And, uh, you know, I had maybe 10,000 cards, you know, every one you have to punch at a key punch. And sometimes the holes were a little off and, you know, they wouldn't read right. So it was lots of things besides just the code that could mangle your program. And in those days, you only got maybe one or two runs a week on a, on a university-owned computer. There was one computer for the, there were no PCs or, uh, you know, computers that uh, were, were easily at hand. You got in a long line in the queue and you know, may, a week may go by and you may not even get a run on your program in a week. So you can imagine debugging was really, really important if you're only going to get one or two runs in a week. You don't want to waste them because you left a comma off, you know, behind a statement. So debugging was a very important thing, unlike today, where the debugging is done in seconds with code, and it's a very quick process. So the ability to debug code, uh, I just brought the code up in my mind, and all the, uh, the lines that were, uh, had faults in them turned red. And I just noted the lines because I had written all the code, so I knew all the lines intimately. And I'd go check those out, and sure enough, those lines had errors. And suddenly, what took me and most everybody else months to do, I could do in a half a day. And that was even better than not needing more sleep. That was getting the work done, you know, a lot faster and a lot smarter. So then I realized that reality was much bigger than what I thought, because that kind of went around all the concepts I had of reality as a physicist at that time. So it was, um, oh, probably a couple of years after that, I get out of graduate school, I take a job, and I run into Bob Monroe's book, Journeys Out of the Body. Actually, my boss gave it to me. So uh, we find out that Bob only lives 45 minutes away from, you know, from where we were. So we made arrangements to go out and meet him. And he had just built a lab, and it was one of those, uh, you know, build it and they will come. He had no idea what he was going to do with his lab. He didn't have any people to work in it. It was just build a lab and they will come. He built it, and we came. And uh, I started working with Bob, just building equipment for his lab to begin with <clears throat> and using myself as a guinea pig for the uh, uh, things that he had, which was a he had some sounds, different sound uh, things that you would listen to and relaxation exercises and other things that would help. So the deal I made with Bob is, you know, I'll be your scientist for free and you teach me how to go out of body like you do because if I don't experience it, it's not real to me. So he agreed and myself and, a, and another guy, Dennis Menerick, who was also worked same place I did, came up with me in the same group. Um, you know, we started going uh, like, 15 hours a week to Bob and Rose, you know, it was all like a halftime job. And we were out there every evening uh, after work and on weekends and we brought our families out there and uh, Bob was good. 
on his word, he taught us how to go out of body to where we could go out of body whenever we wanted to on demand. And what I wanted to do as a physicist was understand it. How does it work? What is it? What is an out of body state? Where is this reality? What is the reality? You know, where is it? How is it? What good is it? What can you do in it? You know, what can't you do in it? Uh, how's it connected to our reality? Uh, what's it have to do with consciousness? What is consciousness? So that's what physicists do. They try to model reality. They try to understand how the world works. And here I was, a physicist that only knew a small fraction of what was in our reality. And now I've got this other whole doorway open to me, and I wanted to explore it. So that was my job. I was kind of theoretician of the group, trying to figure out what, what it was and how did it work. Uh, Dennis, uh, he was an electrical engineer, so he worked on building equipment and, um, and uh, you know, progressing his own, down his own path uh, with it. So that was back in the very early 70s, like 1970, 71, 72. And uh, we did that with Bob Monroe for probably seven, eight years, putting in this half-time job. So you're, you're looking at thousands of hours, you know, spent in the lab with Bob Monroe as, as the teacher. And I gained a little bit of understanding about how it all worked. Um, I knew it had something to do with... Uh, yeah, with growing up, with getting rid of ego and fear, becoming love, you know, all that started to become obvious in time that that was a part of it. It, was a, it was a, wasn't something you did, it was something you had to be. That was the main difference. It's not in the doing, it's in the being is, is what's important. So anyway, and then I'll make the story a lot shorter for the rest of it. So for the next uh, 35 or 40 years, I'm working on it, you know, I'm spending my time doing research in the out-of-body state. I wanted to understand consciousness, its limitations, and how did it work and what it was. And the best way to do that is doing experiments inside, you know, consciousness. Uh, if you study consciousness from the outside, like, uh, you know, study somebody else's consciousness or even your own in meditation, you don't get very far. But if you can travel around within consciousness, what I call the larger consciousness system, then you can actually do research there. You can do things and they have effects here and then you can do them again and see if the effects are consistent and what are the variables and if you change this variable, how does that affect the change of, you know, of what happens here? And it's just a lot of painstaking uh, research, trial and error, trying to figure out how this thing worked. So in 2003, I thought I had some idea how it worked and I wanted to write it down. And I wanted to do that because writing it down forces you to be clear in your thinking. Most of us, when we think, are very fuzzy in our thinking. You know, we don't, we're not too exact. But when you have to write it down, there's no such thing as a fuzzy sentence. You know, your sentence says something or it doesn't. You know, it's, it's a very clear and precise instrument if you write in, in decent, uh, you know, whatever your language is, in my case, decent English. So it forces clarity. And I found I had all kinds of holes in my, in my thinking, you know, in my ideas and things that were incomplete and things I really didn't understand because when I tried to write them down, it was like, well, I really don't know what I'm talking about here. You know, it's, it's all hypothetical and you know, I need to do some more work. So writing the books was about a five-year process. And in that five-year process, I did a lot of learning and again, a lot of exploring and, and uh, researching. 
And then I thought that uh, I understood it well enough to, to write these books. I thought maybe after a while that I'd have enough material for a book. And then I thought I'd have material for more than a book. And pretty soon I had so much material, I had to break it into three pieces. Otherwise, I would have had a book with a thousand pages in it, which uh, would have been too hard for anybody to lift off the shelf. So I broke it, and that's why I ended up with a trilogy. Um, then it had been published for about a year or so. And what it is is a model of consciousness was what it was. It was a, a scientific model of consciousness that was the results and conclusions of all of those years that I spent trying to figure it out. So about a year or two after I publish it, I get some aha moments that say the, the very same principles, ideas, and concepts that I have based my theory of consciousness on also explain quantum mechanics. Oh, my God. You know, so I looked at it. I mean, I'm a physicist. I should have gotten that right away, but I missed it entirely. And then... When I finally got it, I said, well, look, it's exactly the same thing. The same thing I'm using to explain how consciousness works explains why quantum mechanics works, you know, why particles should be probability distributions, which is a big mystery in physics. And then I started thinking, well, if, if I can explain quantum mechanics and physicists can't explain quantum mechanics, then what about the other big mysteries in science? And immediately jumped up uh, relativity, relativity theory, like quantum mechanics is based on an assumption that nobody understands how it could be that way. With quantum mechanics, the assumption is that particles are probability distributions. Now, what's that mean? Particles are probability distributions. See, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But that, it, with that assumption, you can compute correct answers with quantum mechanics. But the assumption itself is a mystery, why that should be true. In, in uh, relativity, the, the mystical assumption there is the velocity of light is a constant. Why should it be a constant? Nothing else has a constant velocity like that. Everything else, velocities are additive. You know, if you, if, if you have the source moving, then the, the light from the source should be moving not only at its speed, but also the speed that it gets from the moving source. But light isn't like that doesn't matter how its source is moving. It always goes exactly the same speed. You know, C is the, is the letter we denote speed of light with. So why is C a constant? Well, again, just like in quantum mechanics, if you make that assumption that C is a constant, oh, well, now you can derive relativity theory. It's just based on that fact is its fundamental, you know, that's the fundamental fact in relativity. And physicists had no idea why C should be a constant. And my consciousness theory was screaming the answer. It said, of course, C has to be a constant. Couldn't be anything else. Look, it falls right out of the virtual reality. And virtual reality, uh, or I should say that re our reality is information-based. That's another way of saying virtual reality, uh, is, was a fundamental tenet of my uh, consciousness theory. So uh, I ended up realizing that I could do better physics. And after that, I started looking at all of the paradoxes in physics, the things that physicists know because experimentally they verified it's like that, but don't know why. There's a lot of paradoxes in physics. Um, you know, some of the more obvious ones are, you know, where did the Big Bang come from? If our whole universe is all there is of reality, and our whole universe evolved from a big bang that was a, you know, a ball of uh, uh, plasma at high temperature 
at high pressure, where did that ball plasma come from? Didn't come from our universe because our universe hadn't evolved yet, you see. So it had to come from outside of our universe, but that doesn't really make sense. So it's another one of these paradoxes. And physics is, is littered with these kinds of paradoxes, some big like that uh, in cosmology, some small um, things. But anyway, I found out that consciousness theory derived a more complete physics. And that was really a good thing. I was really, you know, I, I grinned about that for probably a couple of months because I'm a physicist and uh, I saw the two coming together. I had known that they must come together somehow, but I didn't really know how before that. And the reason I say that is I knew that consciousness was fundamental. My studies in consciousness told me consciousness is fundamental. Physical reality is secondary. It's a product of consciousness. And you can get that just from experimenting with your consciousness. That's a fact. Well, so I knew that physics had to come from consciousness in some way. I just didn't know that it was that easy, that it was that obvious. It was just sitting there in front of me. And then when I saw it, it was, uh, it was just another verification that the consciousness theory was good theory because it indeed could explain uh, quantum mechanics and relativity, which is uh, what Einstein called uh, a toe. A theory of everything was a theory that could explain both quantum mechanics and relativity. Well, there it was. And they both fall right out of that, out of consciousness. And the physicists, Einstein included, knew that relativity and quantum mechanics were both just parts of something bigger. But they didn't know what that bigger thing was. As it turns out, that bigger thing is consciousness. You see? So that kind of ties it all together. So then things like uh, consciousness... Uh, is not a, a strange thing. There is no hard problem there. Uh, consciousness is not created by brains. Consciousness is more fundamental than the, than the physical. Um, so that kind of opened up a whole new way of looking at life. So the next thing I did was say, well, if this is the case, maybe I can come up with some quantum mechanics experiments that help verify this theory of mine. And I did. And I came up with a, a set of, actually it's like 17 or 18 experiments, but it boils down into about five, five different fundamental experiments. So I have these five experiments and I had them crowdfunded. Um, we did a, a Kickstarter program last May and uh, pulled in about $236,000 to do the experiments. We're in the process of doing that. We're, we're looking for physicists and institutions, you know, that will take that on. Uh, we've built up a nonprofit called CUSAC, you know, Center for the Unification of Consciousness and Science. Um, so anyway, we've just been working hard now at trying to get these experiments done and uh, have some, some uh, physical, scientific, hard evidence that reality is this way. And I think, uh, you know, we will be successful when we get those done. So that's coming in the next year or so. So that's kind of from the beginning all the way up to, you know, what's happening now. You know, what's happening now is the, we've got these uh, quantum mechanics experiments that uh, hopefully in the next year we'll, we will uh, get those completed and done and be publishing the results. So that's kind of who I am and where I started. And uh, I guess there's one other thing that I should say. I mentioned in the beginning that you find out when you travel this road that it's really not about doing, it's about being. 
and you begin to change going down this path. And as you grow up, as you, uh, you know, as your reality expands, as all the things, well, I shouldn't say all the things, but many of the things that people call paranormal just become normal, you know, because in, within the consciousness viewpoint, they're just normal things. They only are paranormal or kind of, you know, beyond normal, above normal. Uh, if you have a materialistic viewpoint, then they're not normal at all. They're paranormal. But if you understand consciousness, they're just normal. And when you live in a larger reality uh, and you have a deeper understanding of the way things work, it just naturally brings you to a personal growth where you understand that what's important is very fundamental choices that you make, that you make your choices with love, with caring. It has to be about other, not about self. And that being self-centered, uh, you know, gimme, 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 me, 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 you know, oh, what do I want? What can I get and how can I keep it? Uh, when your life centers around those kinds of things, your life is unsatisfying and it's generally unpleasant and there's a lot of fear and a lot of pain. And uh, my consciousness research kind of also evolved not only the nature of consciousness, but what we're doing here, who we are, why we're here. And uh, what is this, what is this physical reality? You know, where did it come from and why is it here and why are we in it? And when you answer all those questions, you know, I can, I could probably talk for six hours just on those questions, but to come to the bottom line of it, we're here to grow up, to become love. That's why we're here. We're here to make choices. And by those choices, we lower the entropy of our consciousness, which means we have spiritual growth. We begin to care about other more than ourselves. We um, uh, become love. So it's not about acting. It's not about acting kind or acting loving. It's about being kind and being loving. And those two things are vastly different. Acting comes from the intellect. You can act any way that you think you should or the way that, that uh, uh, you know, makes your image be the way you'd like it to be or, or whatever your motivation is. You can act it, but that is completely different than being it. When you act kind, you're constantly thinking of, well, would that be a kind thing to do? Should I do that or should I do this other thing? Oh, there's a little old lady needs help across the street. Uh, well, I see a lot of people are watching me. I think I'll, I'll help her across the street because then I'll look really like I'm kind. You see that? And then I'll tell everybody when I get to work about how I helped this little old lady across the street. You see, that's all coming from the intellect. That's about you, your needs, your need to be kind. But you're really not kind. You're just acting kind. Because if you were kind and you saw that little old lady, you wouldn't think about anything else other than she needed help and you could help her and you would help her. And it's not a matter of, is, should I do this? Will it make me late for work? You know, uh, do I have the time? Uh, does she really need my help? I guess you'd always think that, you know, you don't want to help somebody across the street that really doesn't want to be helped. But you would think of it in terms of being of service and not in terms of whether or not you are doing the right thing. You just do the right thing without thinking about whether or not you're doing the right thing. You see, it's a difference. It's a difference between being and, and acting. And when we talk about, I think we're going to get into the subject here about uh, 
collective consciousness and what makes a collective consciousness and how does one form it and where do they come from and how is it organized and how much power does it have and why where does it get its power and i can answer all those things and and the answers to those are yes there is such a thing and and yes it can be powerful or it can be weak and and how and why it's either powerful or weak and we'll talk about all those things but one of the one of the major things that we'll be talking about then is this difference between acting and being you see you can again act act like you're kind not at all the same as being kind you can act like you are evolved and caring and full of peace and light but that doesn't mean that you are there's a big difference and with the uh, collective consciousness it's not about what you think that matters it's about what you are that matters and with how much energy and force is is that being your being can be with more or less force of more or less impact so I guess that's it in a nutshell. So I didn't want everybody to think it was just about science and, you know, consciousness theory and physics theory, and it's all kind of pie in the sky and who really cares anyway. You know, if you're not a physicist or a scientist, then at all, you know, so what, you know, let's, let's get back to the real world, but it's about the real world. The most fundamental part of this is really not the science. It's not the physics. That's good. We're going to rewrite all the physics and science here in the next few years, but that's not really what's important. What's important is that we understand this bigger picture of our reality and learn to become love, learn to care about other people. That's what's important. So that's kind of the main message, not the physics. The physics is what gets talked about a lot, but uh, it's, the, it's the metaphysics. It's the, it's the loving and the caring. That is really the core message in My Big Tao. Tom. So, that's it. Amazing. It, oh, it, it's so good, man. Like I, I appreciate you so much. And it, it's so fascinating because you can go physics conversation with all the physicists on the planet, all the brilliant people. I can't do that. But what I love is that the point is about what you're doing in actual reality. Like, what does it mean? Like we can get into crazy physics, but this is the message. And what I found fascinating about our first conversation was that it all went to the highest level spiritual understandings. Like you had like Zen mastery and, and no mind and connecting with a, a bigger consciousness. You had, you know, spiritual um, principles, religious principles of like, you know, do no harm, things like that. You know, everything that your work actually ties in to like the highest level spiritual principles, which is really interesting. And, you know, we can go so many different ways with this um, because you can just talk about everything. It's very fascinating. But I, I think it's interesting that I spent the summer um, studying, I talk about him a lot with uh, a Native American elder uh, of the Mi'kmaq named David Lobert Senapas, who's a mathematician, he's an engineer, he's a scientist, but he's a spiritual scientist. And so um, he's a very fascinating character. But when you're talking about being and thinking, like being and acting, that's one of his main things. One of his first teachings um, is do three acts of kindness a day. And in doing the actual action, so he'd talk about love. He's like, love is great, but in kindness, you can actually measure it. And so you have to actually go be that way and not think it. And one of the expressions he used once at a talk was, um, a lot of you are so heavenly minded, but you're no earthly good. You know, when, I'm, <laughs> when, when he's done 
speaking and he's, he's mm -hmm. spoken to thousands of people around the world. He's met with the Dalai Lama. You know what I mean? He's done all that stuff. He's like, when I'm done talking, like go give a dollar to your homeless, go do something for someone. And, um, you know, that's, you know, he can go kind of out there with the science. Um, but it's always very grounded in the principles. Um, and what I would just get you to do is just continue on with like the consciousness theory. Um, cause I'm just so fascinated about all of it. So wherever you want to dive deeper, like where does consciousness originate? Um, if you want to talk about the global effect, because it gets into very interesting things when you think about, for me, from a sports background, I learned that if you visualize a backflip in extreme sports, you are more likely to land that backflip. Then you go a step further and you have work like Dr. Joe Dispenza, whereas like if you can get into a state, you can cure your, your body of different things. Um, you have the story of Sadhguru where he, I think he said he fractured his um, leg and then he used consciousness to heal himself. And then you've got stories of like Yogananda and Ascended Masters and like, yeah, I'm floating around on a... Um, you know, doing all these things. And you're like, well, how the heck did you do that? What, is, what does that even mean? Um, so I didn't really formulate a question, but I'm wondering if you can go into more like for you, what is consciousness? What is this bigger consciousness and, and more into your theory? Okay, well, I can go into it from the scientific viewpoint of what is consciousness and the structure and how does it work and that sort of thing. <clears throat> or I can go into it from the, uh, you know, from the experiential viewpoint of being and and growing and and uh, you know what is it like to be fully conscious you know so we can we can work at it from from both ends but uh, tell me where you want this to go you understand your audience and and, and what it is they're interested in and, and well i think uh, we, i think i think there. Yeah, I think people would be interested in both. I know like the Unify Network is, is watching right now and it's, it's a beautiful network of amazing people. And what they've done is created um, these global synchronized events, you know, on the theory like uh, Roger Nelson and the Global Consciousness Project. And um, there's a study of the group of monks meditating. I think it was in Chicago. Somebody can pull that up, I'm sure. But there's a group of monks meditating on peace and they lowered the crime rate, things like that. So they're kind of taking that idea of like putting people into action um, and community and like if we're in a hologram you know, I was talking to Adil he's he's one of the founders or the founder and he's an amazing human talking about like if we can project a hologram if we're in our own hologram and we can use consciousness to kind of affect it what effect could we have together in group consciousness and that's what they're studying at global consciousness institute and mm -hmm. things like that so I'm curious your thoughts on that that might be okay. a good angle to, to okay. go okay so we'll we'll uh, we'll start there uh, one of the fundamental things to come out of this theory of consciousness that is required by the theory. And the theory has lots of things that it logically requires as I develop the theory. And one of them is that uh, as a feedback to this virtual reality that we call a physical universe, uh, there is this arrangement in consciousness that our intent modifies future probability. Okay, now the future is not deterministic. The future uh, isn't done yet. It's still open. It can change. It can go any number of different ways. So there is probability that it might go, let's say if there's 10 different states that this future event might end up in, you know, it might do this, it might do that, it might do something else. And these are maybe 10 different ways that this future event could take place. Well, each one of them has a probability. Some are more likely than others. 
Some may be very unlikely and some may be very likely. And these probabilities can change as we put our intent toward a, a very, you know, an outcome. Okay, that is, now I'm, I'm, I'm skipping like, uh, you know, 12 hours of lecture on, you know, why this is a logical, necessary thing about consciousness. And I'm just jumping right into it, you know, making a statement, you know, like it is a fact, but it does have a logical derivation. But that's just the nature of our reality in this virtual reality. It's the way this virtual reality, our physical universe, is set up. That's part of it. And it's, it's not just done that way because somebody wanted it that way. It's a necessary logical part of the structure. Okay? It has to unfold that way. So I'm not talking about magic. I'm talking about actually logic and science. And this turns out to be one of those facts of the way things have to be. So you can change the future probability of something with your intent. That is how people heal with their minds. The probability that you're going to be healthier in the future rather than sicker in the future, it goes up. And we also can make ourselves sick when we're worried and we have fears about, you know, uh, oh no, I've got a, you know, a lump on my neck and, you know, what is that? And, Maybe it's cancer, and then you get very worried about it, and then you tell your friends, and they get very worried about it, and your family gets worried about it, and pretty soon you have 20 or 30 people in your circle of, of uh, people you know, and they're all fearful about the lump. Well, that just puts lots and lots of energy to that probability of it being cancer. You see, you're raising the probability of that happening. So it works both ways. You can use your intent to get rid of someone's headache, just to modify that probability. You can use your intent to give someone a headache. It's just the way reality works. Okay, so that is, that's intention. Now, intention, we're gonna get back to that uh, acting being thing. Intention can be weak or it can be powerful. What makes an intention weak is that it comes from your intellect. Okay, you can make a wish. You can throw a penny in the wishing well and you can wish for something. And that has very, very little effect on future probability because it's coming from the intellect. It's not coming from a deep place. It's not coming from your being level. It's coming from your intellectual level. And that is a weak place for an intention. Okay, the the intents that come from your being level are much more powerful. Now that's a, that's a level that reflects what you are, who you are, what's inside. You know, we talked about you can act kind or you can be kind. If, you, you know, if, you're, if what you're doing is being kind because you are kind, then that's the powerful state I'm talking about. That carries a lot of power. If you're acting kind, that doesn't carry much power. Okay, so it's the same with your intent healing or your intent reducing the crime rate in some city or anything else. You can modify that future probability, but you have a more powerful intent if it comes from your being level. Your being level is that core of you, that part of you that represents you at the deepest, most fundamental level. Okay, now most people don't really even know they have a being level and they wouldn't know what it was. And, 
you know, they struggle with that, you know, because they live out of their heads and their intellect defines their, their reality and their attitudes and so on. They live out of their, their intellects. And when you live out of your intellects, you have a tendency to live out of your ego and out of your fear and out of your beliefs. And you begin making all your choices because of your fear, ego, and beliefs. It's really the motivation behind your choices. All of that is very weak intent. Now, um, another thing that affects the quality of your intent or its ability to actually change things is your focus. The average person has a, a focus of their consciousness, of their will, is just full of noise. Their mind just jabbers on and on and on about all the little things going on in their life and feelings and emotions and slights and upsets and conquests and, you know, what they're going to do Saturday night and just all sorts of things. And one of the things we learn how to, to fix that is to meditate. Meditation is about quieting the mind, getting rid of the noise, being able to stay in a still, quiet place without thoughts for a fairly long period of time. Okay, that's getting rid of the noise. So you cannot have a very powerful intent if your mind is noisy because you can't really focus it. It's your intents flying around and, you know, a dozen things all at the same time most of them all out of the intellect, most of them out of the ego and the fear and the belief. And it's just your, your consciousness potential is just being wasted that way. It's like leaks. You got leaks all over, you know, your consciousness energy is just kind of pouring out in no typical way or form or format. It's not powerful. So that's another way that you can make your, your intention more powerful is having a tight focus, getting rid of the noise and the next thing it takes it takes your what is your you know what is your um, basic most fundamental motivation why are you doing what you're doing what is the point of it why are you doing it and if we tell ourselves oh i'm doing that because i like to help little old ladies across the street because i'm a good person you say well that's pretty weak if, you, if you're doing things, you help that little, little old lady because you really couldn't think of doing anything else. It's just the way you are. You don't think of yourself as a good person. You just think of yourself as a person and you do what you do as you do it. You're not particularly judgmental about yourself. You know, uh, you just uh, are. You just do. You be. You're authentic. You help little old ladies across the street, not because you see yourself as a good person, you know, that's you trying to create an image of yourself in your own mind, but because you are a kind, caring person and you see this old lady needs some help. So that's the third thing is why are you doing it? Are you in service of your ego and your fear and your beliefs or are you just being kind and caring and loving? So if you're coming from a good place, then that gives your intent a lot more power. So these are several things you see that make a difference. So I think it was called, um, I don't know, some decades ago, the Maharishi effect, where uh, people got together and I think it was done out of the TM. TM has a college, has a university um, somewhere. Uh, Dr. What is it? Hegler, Heglin or somebody is a part of that, a physicist who is also an integral part of TM. 
And they ran a project where they tried to change crime statistics in various places and uh, other sorts of big picture things. And they were successful with it. Well, you can be successful with it. It's just probability. You can change the probability of the way things happen and uh, probability of your healing, even the probability of being happy. You see, you can change the probability of, of whatever. You're just changing how reality is going to be. You can also do the opposite, you know, or I can say not the opposite, but you can, you can use that for, for ill as well as for good. If you are one of these people who is constantly fearful, life sucks, everybody sucks, you know, everything is, everything is awful. Uh, you hate, you know, you hate being here. It's a miserable place. Everybody's greedy and nasty and trying to grab and, and, you know, the politicians are all crooked and the, you know, on and on and on and on. So you've got this sense of, of despair and unhappiness and, and how miserable you and everybody is and how there is no way out, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you help create that. That puts power and energy into that being the reality you live in. You create that reality. So what does that mean about us? That means when you just look around, read the papers, watch the news, uh, go walk down the street, and what you see out there is a accurate, a very accurate representation of the quality of we humans. All right, you see a lot of greed and nastiness and violence. Well, that's what we are. We have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of self-centeredness and fear in us. We have a low quality of consciousness. And that behavior isn't them acting badly and poor you have to put up with it. That behavior is us. You know, it's, it's us as a, as a collective consciousness. We create this reality by modifying probability of future events. That's feedback. If you want to know how you're going, look at your life and ask a few questions. Am I happy almost all the time? Am I positive? Do I almost never experience upset, anger, annoyance, anxiety? Are all of those things very foreign to me? And the things that I experience almost all the time are joy and peace and caring and satisfaction and everything just seems to be good and great. Well, if that's the way you are, then you are more highly evolved. You've grown up. You have you know, less fear in your system. But if you say, no, sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I really get upset and I get annoyed and I'm fearful about things. Well, that means you have ego, you have fear, you have beliefs, and that is your problem, not the outside world. You can only change yourself. And you can, you can provide an environment that makes it easier for others to change themselves, but you can't change anybody else. And that environment that you can give somebody else to make it easier for them to change themselves is an environment of safety, of caring, of compassion, where they feel so loved and, and protected and taken care of and liked that they can afford to kind of stretch out past themselves. They can afford to take chances because they're in this safe place. They can afford to be differently. 
you see, that allows them to change their selves or themselves. So that's how you can help other people by getting your own mind, you know, uh, healthy and without fear. Then you are an example. You are one of those people that just other people want to be around you because you're positive and you're up. And, you know, if you're around people who are always sad and down and complaining and whining, oh, it gets tiresome. You know, you don't like to be around people like that. Well, they do. They drag you down. And those people who are full of positiveness, they pull you up. So if you get your own mind straight, lower your own entropy, evolve your own quality of consciousness, you'll be a beacon of light for everyone else. You'll help pull all the people up around you. You don't have to say anything to them. You just have to be, just be there in their existence and you will help pull them up. And I assure you that you do not help anybody grow up by lecturing them, by explaining to them how, why they're wrong and, and don't really understand and what it is they have to do, you know, to, to be better. That doesn't help. All that does, all they hear when you tell them that, all they hear is that they're not perfect. They're not doing it right. And it just adds to their feelings of inadequacy and, and, you know, despair, and it makes it worse. So you can't lead by lecture. You have to lead by example. You have to be a better person. You have to be love, not act it. Because everybody knows when other people are acting. Most of us don't have a clue when we're acting, but we, we know when everybody else is acting. So that acting doesn't really help people. Doesn't help yourself or anyone else. First thing you need to do is be authentic. Be who you are. And then see how that plays out in the world. Is that good? Does it leave you happy? Does it leave the people around you, uh, you know, positive and happy too? Well, then it's a good thing. If not, then you need to consider how you might change who you authentically are. And not change your actions, but change who you are. Change yourself at the being level. Okay, so this thing about the ability to modify future probability is just innate in all consciousness. And it's a, you know, I mean, people do it all the time. You know, people will, will spend, uh, you know, they have, a, they have a picnic next Sunday and they don't want it to be rainy. And they'll just spend a lot of time with, with their thoughts and it's going to be sunny. It's going to be a nice day. And if they're positive, they will increase that probability of a nice day happening. If they're negative, oh, no, I bet it's going to rain. It'll probably rain and, you know, it, you know, it just won't work out and it'll be a mess. And, da, 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 da. and that increases the probability of it being that way. So we collectively now are more powerful than we are individually. So if we have 10 people and they're all equal in their ability to heal, to modify future probability, and there's 10 of them and they're all working together, they will be 10 times more effective than any one of them. It's additive. So if you have one of these things where you get, uh, you know, 100,000 people to all think about love and peace, well, that carries some power. But if 99.9% .9 of them, it's just wishful thinking, well, okay, you got 100,000 people, but most of them are really weak in their ability 
to affect things or change things. So you see, you have to work at two levels. One level, you have to look at, you have to work at the quality of the individual. So that individual has power in, its, in his intent. And secondly, you have to have a whole lot of individuals like that because together they're a lot more powerful. So yes, 50 people or a thousand people can get together and change the crime statistics you know, in Miami. <clears throat> that can be done and that's been demonstrated. Or they can all heal. Those thousand people can all get together and heal some little boy who you know, got burned in the fire real badly. And that will work well too. There are groups of people uh, generally called uh, healing circles who just get together and heal people because they can. They've, you know, they've gathered enough uh, ability and clarity of mind and purpose to, to do that. So every Saturday, they all get together and spend two hours working on a list of ill people. And they get that list that's, you know, people who are ill come to them and say, hey, could you work on me? And if they're really good at it, they don't charge anything. They just do it because they can. If they charge something, they're probably not very good, you see, because they're in it for the wrong reason, and they're not going to be all that powerful. So the people who just will do that, and there's many of those. There's probably hundreds of healing circles. You know, you can Google them, and uh, they just do it because they can. That's why. There's no other reason. It's not a thing for charging and getting ahead. So it's this is well known you know dennis menrick this fellow who was with me going out to bob's uh he would make a parking place for himself when he got to work in the morning because we we had an office building right downtown and every parking space was full and you'd get there and you'd have to park a half a mile away so he would start before he left visualizing a car backing out just as he approached that particular spot because if he approached it 10 seconds later, somebody else already would have pulled into it because there's hundreds of cars just milling around looking for parking spaces. So you have to have precision in the timing and he would work on this and he studied it for a while and said that at about 85% he could produce a parking space. You know, when he came to work, occasionally it didn't work. Well, the reason for that is, and here's the last thing that has to do with our probability and ability to affect things, and that is it depends on how much you have to change the probability. So let's say that there's somebody who is ill and the probability that they are going to get well and be fine is only one in a million because they've got... Uh, Oh, I don't know, cancer all throughout their body. It's, a, it's an aggressive cancer. It's been biopsied by five different doctors. They all agree that it's this, this very aggressive, deadly cancer, and they're stage four, et cetera, et cetera. And you get to that point and you say, well, what's the probability that, you know, within a few weeks they're going to be healthy? Well, it's probably at that point, maybe about, uh, you know, 100,000 to one that they're going to wake up in a few weeks and be healthy. It's not very likely. And a bunch of people can get together and they can make that 100,000 to one all the way down to 100 to one. Wow, 100,000 to 100. They've changed it three orders of magnitude. They've lowered it by a factor of a, you know, a thousand. And it still isn't likely going to work because even at 100 to one, 
it's not likely a person's you know, going to end up healthy in a few weeks. So it depends on how much you're moving the probability. So if you're a very powerful individual, you can move a lot more probability. If you're a very weak individual and you're mainly making wishes rather than, than having a focused, noiseless intent from the being level, well, you can still change the probability a little, just not very much. And if you get a thousand people together who are mostly working out of their intellect, well, they can be more effective. But it's still lots less than a thousand people getting together who are, who are focused, low noise, and working out of their being level, you see? So that's why a thousand monks will do a lot more than a thousand people just collected off the street. Because, you know, it's still a thousand people. So, so I'm, I'm giving you all these examples to show that there's a lot of variables in affecting things with your mind. There's a lot of variables. Variables with individuals, even variables in yourself from day to day. Some days you are more scattered. Some days you are more preoccupied. Some days you are, you know, uh, uh, more noisy than, uh, than other days. Uh, if you are working on somebody that is very close to you, if you're working on your own child because your child just got hit by a car and you're trying to, you know, to, uh, to heal them, you probably won't be as effective if you're working on somebody else's child because your ego and your fear get in the way. In as much as you have ego and fear, that makes you less powerful. So how do you, you know, how do you become more powerful? Well, you get rid of the noise. You have good intentions for doing things for the right reasons. You get rid of your fear. And you know the neat thing about getting rid of fear, if you get rid of all your fear, what's left is love. It's because of the fear that you're not a being of love. All you have to do to be that being of love is to stop being a being of fear. Most of us are up to our eyebrows in fear and ego and beliefs. The fear creates the egos and the ego and beliefs. So if we just get rid of it, and it's, you know, if it's fear, it's about us. Fear is always about you. It's your fear. Even if you think it's about somebody else. Oh, I don't let my children go out on Saturday nights because I'm afraid they'll get in with the wrong group, take drugs, and ruin their life. Okay. Well, you might think, that's just because I love my children. No, it's because you are fearful that your children will not end up the way you want them to be the way you know is best for them, that's good for them. It's about you. Fear is always about you. So when you get rid of that fear and it becomes about other, that's what love is. It's about other, it's not about you. What, it's what can I give? How can I help? Not what can I get, you know, and how can I keep it? Yeah, that's, see, they're just very different things. So that's, that's what happens. You get rid of this fear, you become love. And as you see bigger and bigger pictures, as you just grow up and your picture becomes bigger and you live in a world that is much bigger world than just this physical reality, your world becomes a bigger place. Your decision space, your choices you have are much more than just you would have in this physical reality. You live in a larger space and you have a larger uh, decision space then when you grow that way, you also are growing in caring about other people. 
Because if you don't care about other people, and it's all about you, you'll never live in that bigger space. You see, that keeps you out of that space. It keeps you in a little space that's all about you. A tiny little universe, and you're at the center of it. And that's the way your life will be. But as you get rid of the fear, you can find that you have, you have access to all sorts of information, all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of data. And you use that to be helpful to other people. If you use that to impress your friends or to be helpful to yourself, then you'll be very limited in how much you'll grow. That will limit your growth. So in a way, we don't have to worry about, you know, evil wizards, uh, you know, taking over because the wizardry is self-limiting. If you're evil, you don't get but so much power, even if you spend a lot of time working at it. In the, in the world of negativity, you can be a big fish in a little pond, but in the bigger pond, you'll never be more than a little fish because negativity is just self-limiting. It's not uh, stable. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't grow but so much before it becomes self-destructive. So that's, I guess, maybe a little good news. You don't have to fear the evil wizard. Uh, he's really not all that big a wizard anyway. He's just big in maybe your little pond. But uh, anyhow, if you're just, I'm just rambling now off on the, <laughs> off on the sidelines. But, uh, hopefully I'm hitting a lot of points that will eventually you'll be able to tie together into a sense of what is, what is it to use your intent to affect others. Okay, now maybe one thing I should define is a collective consciousness, which that's a little different. Collective consciousness, what, what defines a collective consciousness is a group of people who, who feel like they are united in some sort of cause or for some sort of reason. You know, maybe it's just a family. You can have a collective consciousness at the family level where you have this family that feels like a family. You know, they feel like, you know, that, uh, that uh, they want to be in this family. They're a part of this family. And that can be a collective consciousness at the family level. Those are those families that are kind of very tight. Uh, you know, everybody helps everybody else, that sort of thing. Um, you can have a collective consciousness at uh, a business level. You know, all the people that work at IBM, you know, kind of have a collective IBM consciousness. They see the world in a similar way. Not maybe the first day they get there, but after they've worked there for five or 10 years, they begin to look at the world in the way that the people around them look at the world. They begin to dress like the people around them. They begin to speak like the people around them. They begin to take on the characteristics of being an, you know, an IBMer you know, or being at a particular business or a particular campus or a particular university or whatever, there's a collective consciousness around that. There's a collective consciousness around being a member of the group called humanity. We as, a, as humans have some collective consciousness. Now, Carl Jung called these things archetypes. There were archetypes at the human level, archetypes at the national level, archetypes at the, you know, the, uh, uh, what I guess the business level or whatever, but these archetypes that Jung talked about are essentially just a collective consciousness. 
So the, the collective consciousness is just a vector sum of all the consciousness of the individuals that are in the group. And how do you get into the group? You identify yourself as part of the group. That's how. You don't get a, you don't have to, you know, join. You don't have to, you know, get a little card you carry. If you just identify as being part of that group, you are a part of that group and you begin to get information from that group that is representative of that group and you begin to take on attributes of the group and they begin to take on attributes of you but you're small and they're big so what you how you affect them is negligible how they affect you can be a lot larger you see so that's the way it is with a group conscious national levels you know, we call that, you know, nationalism, right? That's kind of the group consciousness of I am, you know, a, a Greek or an American or an Englishman or whatever. And there's a certain amount of attitude that comes with that, a certain amount of personality, a certain amount of the way you see the world that comes with that. So if you're, if you are, well, we'll take a, a, a uh, an American as an example. If you're an American and then, then if you really identify strongly as an American, then you will get more of that American um, attitude will become yours because you identify strongly. But if you don't identify strongly as an American, oh, okay, yeah, I was born here, but you know, I, I don't really feel like I belong here. I just born here and I'm an American by birth, but I don't really relate to it a whole lot. Then you don't take on much. From that whole that whole thing of being American doesn't really affect you much. You kind of stepped outside of it. So the key thing about being part of a collective consciousness is you have to want you have to see yourself as a member or as belonging. The more you see yourself as a member, the more you're affected by it. The more you see yourself as, yeah, I work for IBM. I'm part of Big Blue and we make the best, you know, computer parts. And if you kind of have that feeling and you're really an IBM guy and you love it being an IBM guy, then you will, you will become the kind of the epitome of the IBM stereotype. You will gain, you know, you will get a lot out of the IBM collective consciousness. Whereas if you're on the periphery of IBM and you say, eh, yeah, I work here, but yeah, I don't buy into, I don't buy into this stuff. You know, da, 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 da. I, I just work here. It's just where I make my money but I don't really feel like I'm a part of this group. I feel like really I'm an outsider here and so on. Then you don't get much of that. You don't really belong to that collective consciousness, even though you work there. So you belong to whatever collective consciousness that you associate yourself with. The more strongly you associate it, the more strongly you affect it and it affects you. And the way that works is that all consciousness is netted. All consciousness, just like the, the, the World Wide Web, where all the websites are netted. There's a billion websites out there, and they're all on the net, and anybody can access any one of them. But we only access the stuff that we connect with, so we like. So consciousness is sort of like that. We're all netted. So when you have an intention that you're part of this group, then you're open to the communications from that group and you take them on and absorb them. If you're on the sideline and say, no, I just work here, I'm not a part of that group, then you close off from the intentions of that group, you see? So it's a matter of your consciousness kind of plugging in or 
plugging out, you know, of whatever group that you, you in your own mind connect to. So if you connect to being a white supremacist or you connect to being, you know, whatever, an abolitionist, I guess back in the 1600s or your whatever group you, you connect to, you know, you don't have to be a card carrying member. You don't have to pay dues. You don't have to work there. All you have to do is identify yourself with them and you start sharing their thoughts, start sharing their attitudes. That's why you can have a consciousness, uh, a collective consciousness in a family. You start sharing each other's attitudes. You care about each other and uh, you, you share thoughts and the family has a, has its own kind of attitude, its own kind of way of being seeing the world. So that's what collective consciousness is. There are thousands of different subsets of collective consciousness around thousands of ways people identify themselves with, you know, with other things, with, with groups, with ideas, with concepts. That's what makes concepts so powerful. If you have a concept and your concept, you know, gets millions of people to identify with something, that forms up a collective consciousness right there. You know, and maybe there was one, not one before, now there is one and it exists. And they start sharing their thoughts, their minds, their attitudes, their feelings start going back and forth between them. We see the same thing on the negative side and we call it a mob. A mob is just a collective consciousness of a bunch of angry people. You have a bunch of angry and fearful people and they, become a mob and that mob will do things that none of the individuals would ever do. But together that mob can, can do uh, things more, you know, more horrible than uh, any one of them would do. And that's because their collective consciousness, they are, they're connected now. Their consciousness are connected. They're getting the information from each other. So the anger, one guy's anger feeds everybody else, gets that anger. And they get more angry, which makes everybody else more angry. And as they get more angry, everybody else gets more angry, you see. And it just, it builds to where they make a monster out of this, out of this mob. And the anger is just building because it's, it's a, what do they call in, in uh, electronics? That's a positive feedback. You know, the more you get, the more you get. And the more you get, the more you get. And it just keeps building on itself until it gets saturated and can't grow anymore. And that's when the mob gets crazy. And uh, so that's collective consciousness. It can be a mob, but it also can be a very grown up, high quality, low entropy, loving individual, and it works the same way. All right, guys, we are just warming up. That is part one of three. Tom Campbell is extremely brilliant. Um, I love his view on simulation theory and just what it means and, and what like the result of all his research is um, bringing him to the conclusion of, of the heart and when he talks about increasing your quality of consciousness. So uh, what a an amazing episode. If you like it, please share it with your friends. Um, leave a review on iTunes, support on Patreon. All of those are really great ways to support the show if you resonate with the message and the work. Um, but the best thing that you can do is just go do a kind act for somebody today. Pay it forward. Uh, pick up a piece of trash. Get somebody's name. Let somebody in in traffic. Just be a good human. And if you want, take the kindness challenge, which is three kind acts for uh, every single day for a week. Go out of your way to do it and don't tell anybody. Um, those of you who have been doing 
doing that have been writing with some pretty profound experiences. So please take up that uh, offer, that invitation to do that and then write me about it. Let me know that you're doing it because I know that's when the podcast is working and that's really walking the path of the spiritual master, regardless of what you believe, regardless of where you've been, how much you've meditated, what religion you're a part of. If you actually do the actions of kindness, you're actually the spiritual master because you're taking philosophy into action and that's really where mastery is. So please do that. Um, Check out zenathlete.com. It is a guide to self-mastery. It's a quick read and with all the best principles for basically designing and coding the life that you want from your heart, Um, although that I disguised it as sports. So if you know any sports coaches, things like that, I'm happy to send out eBooks to whoever because we need to get this for the to the kids. That's the whole point of that. Um, sign up for the email list at mattbelair.com. Go forward slash lucid dreaming if you want a free lucid dreaming ebook and guided meditation to help it make it quick and easy for you. Um, check out the work of David Lonebear, Senapass, LonebearsArts.com. We just got back from the Parliament of World Religions, as well as Disclosure Fest with Clifford Mahoudi, the Zuni elder. Uh, they shared quite a bit. Uh, their history is very old, and they're just starting to share this with us. And um, you know, I'm really excited about all the things that we're working on the Biodome Project, the Resonator, a few other things, and we could definitely use your support um, if you resonate with the message. I know that it's pretty far out there, but I have had a few people, engineers, really look at it and be like, you know what, I thought it was bonkers at first, but the more I looked into it, the more I, I think that this is legit, and we're looking to create something so then, you know, when it's built and physical, people will really, really know that this is serious business. So that's where we're, we're at right now, and any support and contribution would be great. So uh, that's where, where I'll leave it. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode have an incredible day before i let you close it up let's just come to a a state of peace and coherence through our breath so just taking a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and just set the intention to come to total peace and coherence now let that breath out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day feeling totally relaxed taking another deep breath in through your nose Holding that breath and just feeling this connection with divine life force energy that just breathes through you, that is you, that's all around you and that you're made up of just life force energy and let that breath out slowly with all the cares and all the limitations, all the self-criticisms. Take it in one more deep breath in through your nose, really connecting to divine power, to your divine will, to your creator power, feeling totally empowered, confident, assured, connected to spirit. Letting that breath out slowly with all limitations, all doubt, feeling totally empowered. So there you go. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we will see you in the next one.